From Michigan Radio, this is the It's Just Politics edition of Stateside. I'm Zoe Clark. 32 days away from Election Day and more than one and a half million Michigan voters have already requested an absentee ballot. So ahead of next week's first gubernatorial debate, where are we in the race for the state's top statewide office? And charges against seven former government officials in the Flint water crisis have been dismissed. So what happens next? We're going to dig into all of this and more on the It's Just Politics edition of Stateside. But first, 30 years after Michigan voters changed the state's term limits, the question over how long lawmakers can serve in Lansing is back. The future of term limits is on your ballot this year. Proposal 1 would allow state lawmakers to serve up to 12 years in one chamber of the legislature. Right now, there's a current cap of six years in the House and eight years in the Senate. But you can serve up to 14 years right now. That's if you get elected to both chambers. Proposal 1 would also require lawmakers and some statewide office holders to submit annual financial disclosure reports. Jason Rowe is the campaign manager for Proposal 1. Hey, Jason. Hey there, Zoe. How are you? Good, thanks. So why is this expansion of term limits needed right now? Well, I would uh, actually call it a reduction in term limits. Um, You know, right now, legislators have the ability to serve up to 14 years, and Proposition 1 would reduce the total number that they could serve to 12 years. I, I think really what this is about more than anything is restoring of people's trust in government. I think we can all agree that we haven't seen an environment uh, as bad as it is right now. And it doesn't matter what party. I think uh, people's faith in institutions and in our elected leaders is at an all-time low. And I think these two proposals will make a difference in how people think about their elected officials. So, Jason, I want to push on this point, though, because I know the campaign is saying that it's going from 14-year limit, right? That would be if someone served all current six years in the House and all current eight years in the Senate. That equals 14 years. But this, again, as we noted, would serve up to 12 years in one of those chambers. So it is an extension, but just simply in each chamber, it's a reduction in the total number of years, which I think has been confusing to voters because, look, each campaign, both for and against, is wanting to kind of talk about it in a certain way, right? Yeah, but I think there's another element to this that is an important one, and that is the experience of the people that lead these chambers. You know, the Michigan budget is $70 billion. We would not uh, take someone that worked at a huge $70 billion corporation and promote the person that served their four years to the CEO position. We have legislators that are only figuring out how to do the job in their respective chamber before they're forced to start figuring out what they're going to do just as they get the experience to actually be skilled at the job. A lot of the policies that they deal with can be very complex as well. Healthcare, insurance. So there's a lot of things that I think might take time if you come from a different background to understand the complexities of those issues. But when we have speakers of the House that have only served four terms in the legislature, I don't think we are equipping our legislators to take advantage of uh, the wisdom that comes from experience in navigating. And I also think there's some problems that take many, many years to resolve. And it would be nice to have some continuity 
in those chambers of people that are trying to tackle some of the bigger problems our state faces and see them through and not just be there for a couple years and pass the baton on to someone else who may have different priorities. So a lot of attention uh, has been paid to term limits, but also, as we mentioned, this proposal would add financial disclosure reports. Now, that's really what the pro-proposal one ads have sort of been spending a lot of time on, you know, what the campaign is promoting. Is that because term limits for voters are still popular. And so instead, really kind of what you're beefing up is this, you know, financial disclosure, which is also (laughs) popular for voters. Well, we actually we have uh, a series of ads. And so the one you're referring to is ad one. You know, right now, the opposition has not been spending any money. And so we're not going to go spend money for the sake of it. When our opposition starts running ads, we will run ads in the markets that they're in. As of right now, the only place that they reserved ads and planned to show up was in Grand Rapids. So the ad you're talking about did run in Grand Rapids for about 10 days. Uh, we pulled it down and, and we will go you know, back up towards the end of the campaign with an ad that talks about the term limits piece. So what you're seeing so far is merely a function of so far, we don't have an opposition that is actually doing anything that we have to respond to. And right now, voters like what they're seeing. I mean, you've seen the public polls, the Detroit News and WDIV out of Detroit published a poll this week that has us at 66 percent approval. Mm-hmm. We have an internal poll that shows something very similar. And one of the nice things about this issue and the coalition that we've assembled is there is no daylight between Republicans and Democrats. They are polling almost exactly the same on this issue. In terms of our coalition, the broad base that we have of Republicans, Democrats, independents, labor, business, good government groups, everybody recognizes that these are needed reforms. And that's also reflected in the political support that we're seeing amongst the voters. Jason Rowe, campaign manager for Proposal One. Jason, thanks so much. Thanks, Zoe. Take care. And let's turn now to Patrick Anderson. He is an author of Michigan's 1992 term limit amendment. He is CEO of Anderson Economic Group. Patrick, you oppose Proposal 1. Why? The first reason I I oppose uh, Proposal 1 is because it would repeal the term limits that was adopted by the voters in 1992 and put on the ballot by citizens who circulated petitions And the proposals being authorized and put in front of us by a legislature, not the citizens, and they would benefit from the proposal by having most of them, 94% of them, being able to stay in the same office longer. Patrick, the argument, you know, a lot of what we hear coming out of Lansing is that the legislature, because legislators cannot get a grasp on the way the legislature actually works in so few years, is that lobbyists and special interests are basically running the Capitol. Is that fair to say? I don't think it's fair for legislators to say that. And I will note, uh, Zoe, that you will be interviewing legislators and elected officials and people running for office now in the next few weeks. I wait to see whether one of them admits they don't know what they're doing, (laughs) says they can't find the bathroom, or otherwise says they're unable or incapable of doing their job. The same legislators who voted to double the time they could stay in the House and who maybe mouthing these arguments that that they're unprepared for office are out there campaigning right now and your mailbox is stuffed 
with campaign ads talking about how many of them are leading the charge to do this and that. So I find it quite hypocritical for legislators in particular that are claiming that they're leading advocates and effective people who are fighting for the taxpayers on one hand, stuffing your mailbox doing it, and then are saying, you know, we really need to stay in office longer because we can't figure out what we're doing. As I mentioned, you were an author of the original term limits uh, three decades ago. That is some of the strictest term limits in the nation. Looking back at that original amendment, do you think Michigan has benefited from this really extreme turnover that we have in the state legislature? I think Michigan has benefited tremendously from having the term limits that we adopted. And let me talk about one of the things we have. Yeah, it's turnover. And that means citizens have a chance to run. Let me just talk about one of the things that it's opened up. It's dramatically opened up the opportunities for women to run for office. Just ask yourself, how many women were elected governor before term limits and how many after? How many women were elected as attorney general before term limits and how many after? How many women were elected to secretary of state before term limits and how many after? Just looking at that should give you a straightforward and unambiguous reading on what turnover means. It means opening doors. Patrick, uh, finally, in the last minute or so that we have, a new poll shows that some 66 percent of Michigan voters approve of this proposal. Does that number surprise you, considering that voters approved the 1992 term limits amendment at like 58 percent approval? The poll, such as it is, disappoints me because Respondents to that poll were read a description of Proposal 1 that emphasized a misleading aspect of the proposal, which is a claim that there would be a disclosure law created. Unless you listen very carefully, you wouldn't have learned that this would have repealed term limits. And this has happened a few times already this year where polls have been done that ask people, do you support transparency and disclosure? And by the way, we might make a little modification of term limits. And some of these respondents are saying, yeah, I want disclosure. So they say yes. Uh, in fact, I read what I heard one of those poll questions and said I'd probably say yes to it. So I'm asking voters, not just for proposal one, but for all three of these, read the text of the proposal. Don't let advertising tell you that this is something that it's not. Patrick Anderson, CEO of Anderson Economic Group and author of Michigan's 1992 Term Limit Amendment. Patrick, thanks so much. Nice to join you. So let's turn now to our political roundtable. We have Nolan Finley, editorial page editor at the Detroit News. Hey, Nolan. Hey. Stephen Henderson, host of Detroit Today at WDET. Hello, Stephen. Hello. And Dave Boucher, politics reporter at the Detroit Free Press. Welcome, Dave. Hi, happy to be here. Oh, so great to have you here. 
Okay, so let's turn back to term limits and proposal one. Um, And Dave, in that earlier conversation with Jason Rowe, again, he's the campaign manager for Prop 1, I noted how this was an extension of term limits, right? Meaning that lawmakers would, if this question is approved, get to stay longer in Lansing. Jason was very quick to uh, push back and say it's actually a decrease in the number of years. The opposition, as we also heard, says this is an increase. Both are actually true. Can you explain why? Yeah. So it's a difference between how long you can stay in one particular legislative chamber versus how long you can stay in Lansing. So right now you can serve three consecutive terms in the House for six years. And then if you are so inclined and and politically adept, you can move over to the Senate and serve another another two terms. So that's uh, two four-year terms. The the idea here, the proponents, uh, supporters will tell you that this uh, legislation lets you spend more time in one individual chamber. So you can learn, especially in the House, how to essentially become a, a, a committee chair or in a leadership position without being a second-term lawmaker, uh, but you would spend overall less time in Lansing, so 12 years instead of 14 years. To your point, depends who you talk to about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing or what part of that you're focusing on, but that's the general gist. And Stephen, I mean, to that point, it kind of muddies the water, and that's kind of also the point, right, (laughs) is just kind of to create some confusion, no? Well, I guess, um, you know, uh, I'm going to start off with... Uh, a reference that uh, that I've used a couple times, okay. but it, it, it's the thing I always come back to when we talk about term limits. I'm here for it. It's the name Dominic Jacob Betty. Yes. And there are so many people who probably don't even know who that is at this point, but uh, but there are lots of us who remember that that long stint he had mm-hmm. as uh, chairman of Approps, mm-hmm. uh, and and really was was uh, you know the most influential person in the legislature for a long time. I mean, this is where this is where the anger about uh, legislative tenure came from. It centered around him and some others, uh, and, and, and voters were really hopped up about making that harder to do. Now we've gone to the other extreme, and in the last thirty years. I think we've seen that that it was an overreaction. That that um, it's it's kind of um, it's kind of a, 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 an amateur playground in in Lansing. In in many ways, you have people sticking around for just a few years and then having to lead. Uh, you have people not being there long enough to to kind of dig in and really get things done, and then they leave and then they go back and and lobby uh, the legislature after after they're done. I, I think. This is a little more confusing, this this reform, than what we had before, but it gets us a little more time. I think that is the, the thing to keep your eye on here. It gets us time to grow people into those jobs and into those chambers so that they can actually do the work in an effective way. Nolan, your thoughts? Well, I've always thought of term limits as you know, protecting the voters from democracy. It forgives voters of their responsibility to limit the terms of lawmakers who are no longer representing them effectively. And it denies them the opportunity to keep on on board people who are who they believe are doing a good job. I think they have no, no uh, place in a democratic system. And I've been screaming about them on a crusade to change them or get rid of them for 20 years. And this is the first real opportunity we've had to fix what 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 came to be recognized, I think generally as a very bad policy, yeah, as Steve said, you, you got people um, pogo sticking from job to job, 
uh, they just haven't worked. And we got a chance now to make them somewhat better. I'm now imagining the Speaker of the House on a pogo skit. Um, Nolan, to that point, uh, I used to, you know, I used to talk to someone who said, "Look, we have term limits, right? They're every two years, and they're called right. elections, and they work." Looking at the number of we voted out over the, you know, the last few years in particular. Yeah, Dave, um, talk to us about this coalition who's behind Proposal One because it's quite interesting. Who is backing? Yeah, it's a mix of characters. So if you talk to somebody that's opposed to this, they'll tell you that it's the the quote unquote establishment. establishment. Yeah, exactly. It's it's the scary insiders of Lansing and the Michigan political apparatus who want lawmakers to stick around longer. But, you know, you see Mike Duggan, the mayor of Detroit. You see former speakers of the House. You see uh, former uh, head of the Michigan chamber. So people that wouldn't necessarily all come together, but they're all arguing what we've heard Nolan and Stephen talk about, which is that, you know, you're having people that are learning where the restrooms are in Lansing leading pretty influential committees. And this lets somebody, you know, serve as the Speaker of the House after six years in the House as opposed to four years in the House. Uh, And and so, uh, again, the opponents are saying that these are swamp creatures and the supporters are saying, well, no, this is, you know, these are the people that work with some of these legislators who've only been there for a little while. And and it would be better for everybody if they could work with somebody who knows what they're doing. Uh, Stephen, though, I did think it was funny. Patrick Anderson, in my earlier conversation with him, uh, brought up that point, right, that that sort of these quote unquote Lansing insiders use, which is, you know, lawmakers are still figuring out where the bathroom is. But he <laughs> said, look, have you ever actually met a lawmaker who in term two is going to say that, you know, as he's running for <laughs> she's running for her third term, like, oh, I don't really know how to do this job. I did think that was sort of a fair point of his, right? <laughs> like, you can't kind of say both at once. Well, I guess you can, and they are, but... Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, look, it, it's not that people literally don't know where the the bathrooms are, but mm-hmm. but there is this sense that, that, um, that this is easy work that I think people have and have wrongly, that, that you don't, that there is no value in in being around and watching how things come together, the process of uh, building uh, coalitions around legislation, the process of building good legislation, passing laws that actually have the effect that you want. It takes time to learn that stuff. And, And yeah, if you've only been there two terms, you don't know as much as you should. Uh, and, and you ought to have more time um, to, to, to figure it out before you're asked to, to make it all work uh, as, as a speaker or, or a majority leader. I mean, um, this idea that, that there is no expertise to legislative uh, work is, is, is dead wrong, I think. Nolan, um, were you surprised that a coalition was actually able to get together and is going to ostensibly be able to raise the money to possibly change term limits? Yeah, I was surprised and and very encouraged because, as as I said, I have been involved in discussion after discussion over the last 20 years about this, trying to put groups together, trying to look for folks willing to fund something uh, that everybody acknowledged needed changing. Now, my preference would have been to drop term limits altogether and, and, and go to a part-time legislature. But the truth is voters like term limits. And this fix, I think, gets to the root of the problem. Uh, that is that you don't have a professional legislature, that you have uh, too many things happening up there uh, that you can attribute to a lack of knowledge, a lack of experiences, too many bad things. But the the sweetener of this proposal, as I see it, 
uh, you know, whether you agree with term limits or don't agree with term limits, I think everybody would agree that we need more transparency and stronger ethic laws in the legislature. And this proposal uh, starts to build that. Well, no, the financial disclosure piece of it is not insignificant. Nolan, funny you should bring that up. Thank you, because that is exactly where I want to go to (laughs) next. So we are talking a lot about the term limits part of Proposal 1. Um, But Dave, there is this other part of the proposal, which has to do with financial disclosure. Um, Here is a little bit of um, Jason Rowe uh, talking a little bit about financial disclosure in Michigan. Michigan is one of only two states in the country that doesn't require our elected officials to disclose their personal financial income. So I think knowing where they get their money and where their conflicts of interest uh, are would help. Dave, would this proposal make all of this magic happen? Yeah. I mean, of course, uh, opponents, including Mr. Anderson, have have said that this doesn't go far enough. But right now, to Mr. Rowe's point, there's essentially nothing, right? And I don't think anybody looks at the U.S. Congress as like a bastion of ethics and transparency, but they have substantially higher requirements for financial disclosure than the Michigan state legislature. I've covered legislatures in West Virginia, Tennessee, and Kentucky. And in every one of those states, you can get far more information about the people that are deciding, you know, what bills should and shouldn't pass than you you can in Michigan. Now, does this preclude the legislature from creating new, different, you know, additional uh, measures in the past in the future, it absolutely doesn't. This is this is setting what many would describe as the absolute floor for what lawmakers should be required to disclose. It, it talks about gifts. It talks about arrangements outside of of government, uh, like other other um, other work relationships. And so, I think it's fair to argue that voters have a really hard time understanding term limits and this wonky like, well, if they spend time in the House, but the Senate, can they stay in Lansing for a long time? I think it's a lot easier to understand you know, is my state legislator getting paid by a big company on the side and not telling me about that? Stephen, I mean, some are pushing back and saying this financial disclosure is only just sort of a sweetener, right, to get voters to change term limits. Is that a fair point? Or to Dave's, is this something that just needs to happen in Lansing? Well, it's more substantive than just a sweetener. I mean, it does, it does, you know, add some requirements. It, it will give us a, a, a fuller picture of what our elected officials are up to when it comes to 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 finances. Um, I, I I like I like the proposal on its face. There's nothing in it I would I would oppose. I mean I think it's it's fair to say we could do a lot more. We could ask a lot more of of the people who who represent us in Lansing, and and we should. Uh, we haven't done much on this front in a really long time uh, in Michigan, and and there have been some opportunities that we missed. Uh, the Secretary of State for a long time was was against the idea of uh, expanding uh, disclosure requirements for 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 folks after um, after Citizens United really opened the floodgates for for money in politics. So the idea that that it's it's nothing is is wrong, but the idea that it's everything is also wrong. We still have a lot of work to do to get to a place where um, where people can trust. What what people in Lansing are are up to, who they're taking money from, and what that means. Nolan, is it just a matter of don't let the perfect get in the way of the good? You know, could this be a lot better? Yes, but you know, I think these are necessary steps. And you know, we we generally oppose making law, making policy through the ballot 
ballot initiatives because you lock in things like term limits uh, some 30 years ago. You lock in things that you can't fix through the legislative process if you find that they don't work as well as perhaps voters anticipated. It's, you know, it's why we say vote no on most ballot issues. We find we think this is an exception to that case because it fixes the things uh, that that the initial term term limits proposal got got wrong. I think this is very much uh, worthy of a yes vote. I think we can see the intersection of both the term limits idea and this financial disclosure in something that was pushed by current House Speaker Jason Wentworth, one of his first uh, speak uh, press conferences as speaker was talking about transparency mm-hmm. and talking about how nobody trusts their government or they could there could be an increase in, in uh, trusting your government and he used that as part of a sweeping package to increase some of these disclosures increase who is subject to Michigan's open records laws this, this package that had been introduced in the house before but he made this a, a marquee thing for the speaker passed the house again unanimously which doesn't happen very often mm-hmm. and it has just been languishing in the Senate now mm-hmm. of course if he had more time as a speaker in theory he could put more pressure on lawmakers to make that pass. He doesn't. And again, this is passed through the House at least four or five times only to die in the Senate. And so when legislation fails on multiple occasions, another way to implement at least something Mm -hmm. is through an initiative process like this. And Stephen, to Dave's point, that is what some of the uh, opponents are saying, which is, look, you know, the legislature could actually pass these financial disclosure reforms right now. They don't need voters to do it. And yet that hasn't happened. Well, this goes to the the point of uh, the first conversation we had, which is that a, a term limited legislature is less likely mm-hmm. to, to, to get things of substance done. Uh, the, 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 it changes the political equation in people's minds. Uh, it makes people less likely to, to, to be thoughtful about uh, the kind of things they're doing, thinking years out instead of um, instead of what's it right in front of them. Uh, th- that's why we can't get the legislature to to do this. And so I'm not a big fan of the referendum process either. I think it it, it, it has confounded us more often then it has helped us. Uh, but but this proposal in particular is is really strong in that it accomplishes two things that we have not a lot been been able to count on our elected officials to do for us. So we'll do them ourselves. Nolan, a few minutes ago, you said voters like mm-hmm. you that voters like term limits. Um, and yet uh, yeah. some new polling shows that voters also seem to like uh, this kind of change. Reconcile those two. Are they just sort of realizing, look, you know, some something needs to change here? Well, I mean, this doesn't do away with term limits. And I think that's the beauty of this solution. It, again, it's not what I would have proposed, but it does keep term limits in place. And for most lawmakers, it will shorten the amount of time they're in La- they are in Lansing because, you know, a good number of them do their six years in the House, and then go on or gone to do uh, eight years in in the Senate. Uh, you know, this brings those 14 years down to 12, but it allows them to be served in a way that works a lot better for the legislative process. And I, you know, I think voters are are smart. I mean, they see the that that this keeps term loops in place, but adds the extra layer uh, of dealing with 
the transparency that's lacking in Lansing. But how does this proposal, do you think, interact with Prop 2, which has to do with voting rights, and Proposal 3, which of course has to do with reproductive rights in the state? Yeah, I think in general that most attention has been focused on Prop 3, the, the abortion access question, and that that's something that people are really talking about. The other two are slightly more complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, in theory, you know, if you're seeing someone that supports Prop 3, also supports Prop 1, and there's some overlap there, there's, there's not, you know, there's others too. But if there's overlap there, then you could, in theory, go in and, and, and vote for that as well. And it's going to be an election where some of the races aren't as tight, but people are excited to vote for at least Prop 3, and that could lead to other people voting for the other ones as well. Okay, we've got to leave that there and take a quick break. But still to come, a judge tossed out criminal charges this week against seven former government officials in the Flint water crisis. The decision drops charges against former state health director, against two former Flint emergency managers. We're going to ask what happens next. That is coming up after this break. You're listening to the It's Just Politics edition of Stateside from Michigan Radio. We are not term limited here. So charges against seven former government officials in the Flint water crisis have been dismissed. Dave, fill us in on what happened this week. Yeah. So this is kind of a fallout from a Michigan Supreme Court decision, not on the substance of what happened in Flint, but the process used by prosecutors to to seek these charges, specifically this one man grand jury. So this is a process of how you get someone indicted. Typically, one would anticipate a grand jury process that involves something like a, what you would see on TV and that there are lots of people who are making a decision. In Michigan, you're allowed to bring this to one person for a grand jury, a judge, to decide whether or not uh, you know, the possibility to bring charges is warranted. The Michigan Supreme Court, after this was challenged by some of these defendants here, decided that, that was essentially a process you couldn't use. And so the local judge in this case said, well, I need to dismiss these charges then. And so this was a, again, this is a decision on process, less than substance, but it is gaining, understandably, a ton of attention, both from, you know, the people in Flint who are talking about accountability and people who are looking at multiple regimes of, of attorney uh, attorneys general's office up wondering what they did, why they did it, whether this was appropriate, where they went wrong, that sort of thing. Stephen, uh, I mean, you've covered what happened in Flint uh, for years and years and years. Were you surprised by the Michigan Supreme Court a decision? And again, I want to you know, note exactly what Dave said, that this has to do with process, not right. substance. Yeah, I don't know that I was surprised by uh, what the court did. I mean, look, the, uh, on the technical legal merits, this is the right this is the right call, I think, um, that, that you, there is. Uh, due process. Uh, there are there are things that that have to be respected in terms of how we do things in the law. And if you do them wrong, then then um, things can't proceed. At the same time, this is enormously frustrating for especially the people who were victimized by um, by the other process missteps uh, that officials made in Flint, which resulted in the water being being poisoned. Um, you know, the, the the entire community there is still waiting to essentially be made whole. And I know that's a that's a very broad and nondescript term, but there there is this sense that that uh, they still 
need closure and some sense of justice uh, behind what happened to that community. Uh, the, the settlement that, that was reached a few years ago, that's a big step in the right direction, no question. Um, but, but the idea that there was criminal, um, you know, uh, criminal activity that took place uh, that, that led to this is another way that I think a lot of people in that community really want to see justice served. And this means that uh, that's going to be way, way harder. Nolan, your thoughts? Well, I'm very skeptical that they could have made a criminal case against public services servants who perhaps didn't make the best decisions on their jobs, but did not set out intentionally to harm anyone. But I'm I'm more uh, concerned here with the process because I think that's important. And Kim Worthy was placed in charge uh, of this prosecution uh, along with the solicitor uh, general. And you know, Kim has had a a long history of value, valuing expediency over justice. And she has used this one-man grand jury uh, system in Wayne County now for a, for a few years. And basically what it, you know, what it, what it's set up to do is put defendants at an extreme disadvantage in prosecutions, deny them access to the evidence against them and make it far easier to get convictions. And, you know, what's going on in Wayne County or before the Supreme Court put an end to it uh, was, you know, defendants would be charged and face this choice of whether to plead guilty or, or risk a jury trial without ever having seen the full evidence to, against them. And in this case, you know, you, they uh, ran the evidence through a one, one man grand jury that the defendants still haven't seen uh, what that evidence uh, uh, pertains to, what, what's in those files. They have no ability to make and mount an adequate uh, defense. And I think, uh, you know, Bridget McCormick's the the um, chief justice call it a star chamber, and it's exactly what it was. And it's not the way we should do justice in this state. I mean, people should have the ex- expectation that the that the, the, the field's going to be level uh, when they're dragged into court. Well, and to your point, the Michigan Supreme Court ruled in that way. Um, Dave, what happens next? So as Nolan pointed out, uh, Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy was was leading some of these prosecutions. She gave a press conference after the announcement this week, and she essentially said that while the office has the capacity, they believe, the capacity to pursue charges again through what I guess we could call the traditional process, mm-hmm. uh, that they haven't made a decision yet on whether they're going to do that. Now, we've already heard from attorneys for the defendants here saying any number of reasons why they don't think they can for, you know, um, that the the statute of limitations has passed, that it's, it's too late, and broadly that they didn't have a case to, to begin with. So I think really it's a it's a question at this point as to whether any charges for these specific defendants are brought again. Um, Stephen, we should note the ruling does not affect former Governor Rick Snyder's misdemeanor charges of uh, willful neglect of duty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, uh, I, I, again, I disagree with Nolan about the possibility of of finding criminal uh, liability in, in, in these cases. Uh, the extent to which you are negligent as a public servant uh, is a is a potential uh, 
criminal uh, offense. And and Snyder's charge is is appropriate in that way. I thought some of these other charges were also appropriate in that way. Um, this one will will not be affected as you as you point out. But uh, but I, I guess we have to wait to see if there's a way to resurrect the others. Um, you know, in a in a different form. Dave, I want to turn to a piece of yours in the Detroit Free Press this week. You profiled a number of candidates running for various offices, including statewide offices in Michigan, um, who are continuing to deny the results of the 2020 election. It's important to note, as you do at the very beginning of your piece, that it's not just candidates running for, say, county treasurer, right? In fact, these are candidates running for offices that would have direct control over the mechanics of elections in Michigan themselves. Tell me a little bit about your piece. I thought it was fascinating. I appreciate that. Thank you. So we examined at the Free Press and other newspapers across the country uh, that we work with some of these candidates, like you said, the offices they're running for and the potential impact that we could have. And so I think, you know, while we are seeing specifically Republican candidates at the statewide level at times move away from rhetoric that the 2020 election was stolen, it really, you know, was this idea was essentially a springboard for several of them to even get involved in party politics and to secure their party's nomination, specifically for Attorney General candidate Matthew DiPerno and Secretary of State candidate Christina Caramo. And while elections are controlled in Michigan at the local level, so clerk to clerk, we know that, for example, the Secretary of State's office has played a substantial role in running elections in Detroit in several years, and that any given moment, if the Secretary of State sees something that's going on in a particular jurisdiction and deems it inappropriate or otherwise isn't working how it's supposed to, that they can intervene in elections. So we don't know what would happen if, if somebody, again, like like Ms. Cramo, who has repeatedly alleged to have seen uh, fraud at what was then the TCF Center, and those those claims have been you know repeatedly debunked. If someone like that becomes attorney uh, secretary of state, it's it's a legitimate question to see. Well, what does the office do? Where does she take that? At the same time, any sort of legal action that the secretary of state's office would take would almost assuredly require the attorney general to represent them. In that case, of course, there's a chance for outside counsel, but generally sec- the attorney general is doing that. And we don't know if again if a attorney general Matthew DiPerno would decide to launch some sort of sweeping investigation into 2020. He has repeatedly vowed to go after the people who are at fault for this 2020 election fraud that he has alleged and um, has has been unable to prove, at least at a systemic statewide level. And he is also bringing up the the idea of whether or not public actions by elected officials can lead to criminal charges. He has already vowed not only to investigate, but to charge Governor Whitmer, Secretary of State Benson, and Attorney General Nessel for acts that they have taken in office. And some of that is related to the election. And so this is this is something that we that we really wanted to dive into, especially since some of these candidates, chiefly uh, Mr. DiPerno, have tried to pivot away from some of uh, these comments and statements that they've made in the past. Stephen, I know you've been talking a lot about this as we have been at Michigan Radio on your show, Detroit Today. <laughs> Give me your perspective about where we're at 32 <laughs> days in and the number of basically election deniers who are on folks' ballots. Yeah, I mean that's the thing that that is surprising. I mean, it's I suppose it's not surprising that people who believe that there was some mischief during the election still still believe that. I mean, uh, it, it it really is about their their worldview and their their outlook on things and fact and data don't enter uh, don't enter the equation too too strongly. Uh, but the fact that 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 there are so many who are 
you know, vying to, to represent us um, either in, um, you know, local districts or in, or in Lansing is, is really disturbing. And look, this is a big problem for the Republican Party. First of all, I think it's going to lead to uh, a lopsided midterm outcome in this state, right? Uh, Republicans should be doing pretty well this year in Michigan because there's a president a Democratic president in the White House, and and usually that president loses a lot of ground in the midterm election. I'm not sure that's going to look the same here because of that. But but the other the other problem, of course, is is the destruction, the the, the damage that it's doing to the party uh, longer term. I mean, it's making it very difficult for uh, you know the party to look past Donald Trump and his presidency and his influence uh, to find new footing. Um, this is this is a, a, a huge threat, I think, uh, to the idea, the very idea of of Republican electability uh, in Michigan. And I think we're going to see that play out next month. Nolan, how much damage is this doing to the Republican Party in 2022? Well, it's certainly going to lose the top of the ticket uh, because they allowed uh, Donald Trump to pick their candidates. Uh, I've been interviewing candidates for endorsements over the last six weeks. Uh, I haven't found that many uh, candidates who have, you know, who haven't started walking back from this uh, election denial stuff. I think most of the Republicans running for Congress, not all, but most have sort of tried to you know, put that uh, behind them now that the primary's over. But it did. I think it cost. It it did cost the Republican Party at least two seats. They could have won with legitimate, mainstream, uh, rational candidates. And we'll see what it does in the legislature. I think in the primary, if I'm not mistaken, they did a pretty good job of weeding out uh, a number of those folks. Uh, but. Uh, you know, the state house, state senate very much in play uh, in large part because, you know, they let Donald Trump pick their candidates. Well, let's turn to the race for governor, digging a little in the final moments that we have here. Um, we've got a debate coming up next week, Thursday the 13th in Grand Rapids. Um, and interestingly enough, Republican candidate Tudor Dixon basically laid out her strategy for the debate on Fox Business News yesterday. Um, here's a clip, and it starts out with the host uh, asking Tudor this. Is there one big issue which you will seize on to attack Governor Whitmer? What's that issue? Yes, she had her radical policies on education for sure. We will go after her there. Her radical policies on education and energy, honestly, because she wants to shut down a pipeline in the state of Michigan. We're back to that. We still have a governor in the in the United States that wants to shut a pipeline down in the middle of an energy crisis. And as you know, we have higher gas prices than almost any other state. So shutting down another pipeline in the United States would be catastrophic. Nolan, are you surprised by education and energy being uh, the platform here from Tudor Dixon? Well, I'd be surprised if they weren't. I mean, what are people worried about in this election? What are they talking about? Uh, gas prices uh, back over $4 a gallon here with what OPEC did this week. They could be by Election Day well over $5 a gallon. It's a smart thing to talk about because it's what voters are talking about. And voters are also concerned. We've seen it you know, in poll after poll and in race after race uh, across the country, they're also concerned about education. So I think Gretchen Whitmer very much was prepared to to be uh, 
uh, face with those issues. And Tudor Dixon's smart to raise them. Stephen, is, is, are Michigan voters that interested in, let's say, education, a, an issue that Tudor Dixon has really been trying to kind of uh, stoke up culture wars over the past few weeks? Or is it more about things like inflation? I think they're interested in education. I'm not sure they're interested in what Tudor Dixon wants to talk about with regard to education, which is, you know, her scapegoating of of cultural differences and and you know the the, the need to expand uh, uh, diversity concerns and things like that. I'm not sure that's what's on on people's minds, parents' minds when they think about their schools. They're thinking about performance. They're thinking about in person. Uh, I think that's a, a a place where you could have a legitimate debate about uh, what the governor did during the pandemic and how quickly we got back to in person uh, uh, schooling. Um, you know, I, I, I also think this Line 5 thing, listen, Line 5 has nothing to do with gas prices um, in the state of Michigan, especially. I mean, and and anyone who knows anything about Line 5 would know that. That's not that's not what what's at stake there. This is kind of a desperate reach to try to tie um, an environmental concern to inflation, which which I think Michiganders are probably uh, a little more savvy than that. I mean, look, Tudor Dixon is down by seventeen, some eighteen points by in, in some polls. She's she's grasping for just about anything at this point that she thinks will will stick. Uh, and these look like um, you know the kind of desperate hail mary kinds of attacks that you see from a candidate who's who's that far behind. Dave, in the final minute that we have left for folks who are going to be watching the debate, and maybe this is the first opportunity that they've heard uh, from Tudor Dixon, uh, what are you going to be watching for? I'm really interested to see how the Dick. Uh, Tudor Dixon and the Dixon campaign appeal to non-Republican base voters. Uh, we've noted this. Uh, if, it feels as though the Dixon camp and the other Republicans running in the other statewide offices haven't stopped running for the primary. They are appealing to a base. We're hearing, again, a lot about uh, culture wars. We're hearing about banning books. We're hearing about uh, other issues that arguably you know, can really rile and fire up Republican voters, but might not have as much uh, capacity to connect with a broad scope of voters as, say, uh, you know, a plan to fix roads, for example. And so I'm looking to see how she's able to connect with voters who are reticent to vote for a Republican. I'm also uh, looking forward to seeing how she's responding to the Whitmer campaign's obvious uh, discussion points coming on abortion. We're going to see the governor talk about abortion and abortion policy. So far, the Dixon campaign has not done a very good job of responding to that in a way that is going to, again, appeal to a broad uh, expanse of voters. So uh, they've had a lot of time to think about it. This is a big stage where, of course, it's going to come up. So it'll be interesting to see how she responds to it. And we will cover it all a week from now on the next It's Just Politics edition of Stateside. Every Friday from now until Election Day, digging into the political news of the week. We were joined this hour by Dave Boucher, politics reporter for the Detroit Free Press, Stephen Henderson, host of Detroit Today at WDET, and Nolan Finley, editorial page editor at the Detroit News. Hey, you guys, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. I am Zoe Clark. April Bear is back in the chair on Monday. Thank you so much for listening.